Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. make a statement to you, um, and then I want to tell you a story behind that statement. Here's the statement. The hardest part about obedience isn't saying yes to God. It's saying no to myself. Would you say that that kind of goes along with your experience? It does for me. Um, Thursday, I was working on this message that I'm about to preach to you, and uh, I feel like God dropped that sentence on my mind. I wrote it down in my notes, finished up the message, was feeling really good, closed my laptop, put it into my bag, went out to go to my car, and was in a really good mood because, you see, the plan was that uh, I was going to be able to, my my wife and kids were at mother-in-law's house, and they were going to have dinner over there, and I was heading home to be completely alone. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you out there are extroverts? Okay, raise your hand high. How many of you are extroverts? Okay, that means you love being around people, you get energized by being around people, and it's life-giving, good for you. Um, How many in here are introverts? Raise it proud. Okay, you probably know what I am by how I'm talking about it. Uh, I'm an introvert. Guys, introverts don't hate people. We tolerate people. (laughs) Kind of joking. See, for an introvert, I'll try to explain this carefully for you extroverts so you can understand. An introvert, when they realize that they're going to get some time alone, this well of joy starts springing up within their soul. And they say, oh, I can go and I can be alone with my thoughts and I can read a book or whatever you like to do. And that's where my mindset was on Thursday afternoon because the plan was for me to go home and be alone. And I got in my car and I started driving. I'm about to get on the freeway and I get a call from my wife. And she says, hey, honey, how are you? Good. Hey, so the errands that we're on were taking a little bit longer. The kids are at mom's house. Would you, uh, would you be okay with, instead of going home and being alone, would you, would you go to mom's house and would you uh, make dinner for them and be there with them? And what I said was, sure, honey. Yeah, I'll go do that. And what all the introverts in the room know was that in my soul, what was screaming was, no, it can't be, no, 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 please God, no. Not because I don't like my kids. I love my kids. I love you girls, wherever you are. I love you guys. I love spending time with you when I'm planning on it. No, I really love, I love spending time with my kids. I, I, and, I, and I went and I spent time with my kids and I really enjoyed it. But it, my heart, I wanted what I wanted. And when the plans changed, saying no to myself, that whole drive to the house was like, I was listening to a podcast. I don't remember a thing it said just because I was like, is this okay? Because I so want to be alone right now. And I ah, just all this, you know, got to fight resentment, got all these things because saying no to myself is so difficult. And so I'm going to say that again. 
what I just experienced on Thursday was just a small, you know, pointless, but kind of a microcosm of what we experience all the time, that the hardest part about obedience and doing the things that we ought to do and that God is asking us to do, the hardest part isn't saying yes to God, it's saying no to myself. I, I want to say yes to God, but when it means I have to sacrifice, that's when it's tough. That's when it's tough. And this is why Paul describes our process of becoming like Jesus a living sacrifice. That's the whole point of our lives is to become like Jesus, to become like him. And, and, and I wanna tell you, we cannot become like Jesus without Jesus. There is no transformation without Jesus. There is no becoming like Jesus without him leading the way. And what I experienced on Thursday and what we experience regularly is I want to say yes to God, but it's so hard to say no to me. And so there's this struggle of obedience and transformation. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher from the 1800s, said this, God grant, if we must have two eyes, that they may, may be both clear ones. One, the eye of faith, wholly fixed on Christ. The other, the eye of obedience, equally and wholly fixed on the same objective. That we would be people who have a foundation and bedrock of faith in Christ, but that obedience is right there, focusing on the same Lord. That our faith would not be separate from our works. Jesus, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, said this, says he came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what Matt preached on last week, that we are to image God over our freedom. We must choose imaging and reflecting God over our freedom. But verse 20 is what we're looking at and we're gonna be focusing on this morning, teaching them, these disciples to observe. It's just another word for obey, to do all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to notice something about what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, teach them to know all that I have commanded. He said, teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Now, knowledge is necessary and good. Knowledge of God's word, knowledge of what Jesus said is is a prerequisite for doing what he said. But knowledge in and of itself does not go far enough. The call of Jesus to his kingdom citizens is to obey. This last year has been quite the x-ray or MRI scan that God has taken of the church of Christians in America and handed it to the pastors in America and said, here's what I see. Now, I will tell you honestly, I have seen some really amazing, wonderful things this last year. There have been some people and their response to the hardship and difficulty this last year that has built my faith. I've been led by people in this family, this church family, not even knowing that they're leading me because I'm seeing them respond to God in such amazing ways of faith. Not being turned over by the waves that came, but just saying, God is good, he's in charge, he'll provide and who have come together in unity and linked arms and says, we're gonna do this and walk through this together. I have been so encouraged by that. 
So it's part of the x-ray that God has shown me of myself and the church around us is that there's some really good things he's done. But it's not all good. Can I get an amen? That probably wasn't a loud enough amen. <laughs> it's not all good. The x-ray he's shown us. He's also said, here's some other things I see in this American church. And here's what I've noticed about myself and many other Christians through this last year very poignantly. Most of us prefer knowing over obeying. I'm not saying that at you. I'm owning that with you about myself. I prefer knowing over obeying. In many ways, I think we as American Christians have a very loose relationship with obedience. And I think our default view of obedience is threefold. That it's optional, that it's partial, and it's delayed. I tend to think I'm giving and living my life in obedience if I obey in the ways I want to, to the degree I want to, and on my own time frame. Tell me if that doesn't speak about you and your life as well. That our view of obedience is that it's optional, it's typically partial, and often very delayed. This is what I've seen in myself. This is what I've seen in others. Now, I am no prophet. You all know that. I don't have some special word of God. I didn't have a vision, and Jesus appeared to me and told me to say this, but I am going to share with you a very strong and growing conviction in my heart and in my gut. Not only that, but I also have a Bible, and I read it, and I see what it says. And here's my growing conviction from what I've experienced, what I've seen, and what I read in Scripture. My growing conviction is this, that God is calling his church to a reformation of radical obedience. Different than we've other, ever done, different than we've ever experienced. I don't think we in this church or in the church in America, for a long time at least, have seen the kind of obedience that God is calling us to. And here's what I believe. If we answer his call, I believe we're gonna see a work of God like we've never seen before. I believe he's gonna do things we've never seen before. But if we continue to optionalize, partialize, or delay his call, God will still accomplish his purposes, but it won't be with us. He'll call other people from other countries to come and be the missionaries that we're supposed to be here in this nation. He's already doing that because to some extent, the church has been asleep at the wheel. It's not some nebulous idea, the church, that's you and me. To some extent, we have to own the fact that we have been asleep at the wheel. You can disagree if you want to. That's between you and God. But I would just ask that you would maybe listen and maybe see if God is saying something to you today. Open up Romans 12 if you would. Be great if everyone saw this today, if everyone had their eyes on it to see the words that are there. Romans 12, starting at verse one. 
So last week, as I said, Matt preached on our call to make disciples by choosing imaging God over our freedoms, that we would choose imaging God as our king over the freedom we think we have to self-determine, the freedom we think we have to make decisions for our life when God is telling us to do something else. Church, I wanna remind you this morning, we are owned people. We are owned. We're either owned by sin or we're owned by God. You don't have a choice of whether or not you're gonna be owned. I'm free. No, you're not. You are either owned by sin. You, America may tell you that, but what your Bible says is you're either owned by sin or you're owned by God, but you're owned. There's an English proverbs, proverb that says, the ship that will not obey the helm will have to obey the rocks. Our helm is Jesus. And if we are not in radical obedience to him, we get to come in contact with his rocks, his merciful but severe rocks, his loving but deeply painful rocks. And so here in Romans 12, one through three, we see Paul's vision of what it means to obey everything Jesus commanded. And in Paul's words, our choice today, the choice put before us, is transformation over conformation, not confirmation, conform, to be conformed. We are called to transform over, to be, over being conformed. Let's read it together, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is going to teach us about obedience and transformation and what those look like. But before he does, he lays a very important foundation. And the foundation is what? The mercy of God. We cannot obey God. We cannot be transformed by God without God. Lest we think we can run off and do the things God has commanded, trying to earn salvation or trying to earn his merit. Paul says, no, 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 no. The foundation of everything I'm about to say is this. God is merciful to you. God loves you and he has made a way that doesn't involve you earning it. The mercy of God. A true citizen of Jesus' kingdom lives their whole life in response to the mercy of God. Our life with Christ is a response. We do not instigate our relationship with God. He came after us, amen. We don't obey to be accepted by God. We obey because we have been accepted by God. Leon Morris a biblical commentator says this. The legalist says something like this. Do these things and you will live. But Paul is saying, live and you will do these things. Dead people obey sin. Living people obey Jesus. That's what it comes down to. 
And so we see that us presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice is only possible because God has shown mercy and forgiven us. Church, own this and believe this with all your heart. Transformation does not cause salvation. But transformation is an essential result of salvation. You do not earn salvation with God. But salvation from God means that there is going to be an essential transformation of obedience that happens in your life. Have you ever seen one of those lightless fires? One of those fires you light, but it produces no light? Have you seen those? Of course you haven't, because they don't exist. Where there is fire, there will be light. The light is not the fire, but there's always light when there is a fire. In the same way, when God saves us, when God renews our soul, when the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in us, he lights a fire in our soul that produces light. There is no such thing as a lightless fire. There is no such thing as an untransformed Christian. Those are hard words. Because many of us want to have the salvation, but don't want to obey Jesus. That doesn't happen. Are we perfect? No. Will we have a progressive becoming like Jesus and have a lot of fails and trips and falls? Yes. But there is no salvation that ends up with zero transformation. It does not exist. Offering all that we are, both spiritual and material, is the only reasonable, acceptable response to the mercy we've been shown. So what does it mean to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice? That would have been a very weird phrase for the people who Paul wrote this to to hear. For us, if you've grown up in the church and you've read this and heard this verse over and over again, it sounds normal. Living sacrifice, that's right, the Bible says that. But that would have been very weird for either a Jew or a Gentile who worship at a pagan altar, it'd been very weird. Because what happens in a sacrifice is you bring something that's alive, you offer it up, it's killed, and then it's burnt on an altar. All sacrifices are dead sacrifices. Offering it up to the God you worship. The sacrificial ceremonies, both of Jews and Gentiles, what they knew was this, I bring the body of another, an animal, that is offered up to my God through its death. But what Paul is saying is that this kind of offering, of offering up another through their death, has been done once and for all now in Jesus. Jesus is the only offering that ever needs to be made. His death on the cross offered up an offering perfect for God, and he does not need any more offerings. Jesus is it. On the cross, Jesus said what? It is finished. But kingdom citizens, knowing that this offering of another through death is done for, are now being told by Paul that we are to offer ourselves in a different way. We don't offer up the body of another by way of death anymore. We offer up ourselves by way of life. That every day walking with Jesus is a surrender of myself and my will to him. Tim Keller said this, 
The only thing that dies in a living sacrifice is your right to live as you choose. The hardest part, I'll say it again, about obedience isn't saying yes to God. It's saying no to myself. It's letting go of my attachment to this right to choose, to self-determine, to be the master of my own life. This is what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. He surrendered himself for what the Father asked him to do. And so we follow him and take up our cross and surrender our will and our rights. And, and this dream of self-mastery, we give it to him. Everyday life is now defined by me giving myself over fully to God. You can't kill an animal, put it on the altar, burn it, and then expect to still own the animal and put it back into your flock. You can't cut an animal in half put half of it on the altar and burn it and then bring the other half home and be like, go play in the field. Go eat and, and, and maybe you'll grow into a whole animal again and I'll get some value out of you. No, a sacrifice is all or nothing. True kingdom citizen spirituality is not merely internal. It is total. We don't Surrender to God partially. We don't surrender to God optionally. It is total. A living sacrifice is a totality. Offering myself as a living sacrifice is a picture of total surrender to Jesus. And I want to tell you this. This is so important. The extent of your transformation will be decided by the extent of your obedience. Do you want minimal transformation? Then minimally obey. Do you want maximal transformation? Then maximally obey. Give it all. Now, some in here may be tempted to say, well, minimal's good enough as long as I'm still saved. If I can get in the doors and still be saved, then minimal transformation, I can live with that here because God will fix me and, and I'll be totally new when, when I die, when I go to be with him. If that's what you're saying, then perhaps you don't understand that being saved by Jesus is synonymous with being owned by Jesus. And if I don't understand that I am owned by Jesus, then perhaps I'm not. Perhaps I'm still dead in my sin. And so Paul gets even more specific with what he means by being a living sacrifice. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Christians reject the godless aspects of character and conduct of the culture around them in order to seek the will of God. We reject the world's culture in favor of Jesus' kingdom culture. A commentator said, Christians have been introduced into the life of the world to come. What a tragedy then if they conform to the perishing world they have left. Have you ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption? Some spoiler alerts here. I mean, I don't know if 30 years later is a spoiler. Um, it's this movie about a man, Andy Dufresne, who gets 
uh, accused of something he didn't do and, and gets sentenced to prison. And he goes there, he's there for a very long time and he makes his friend, played by Morgan Freeman, his, his friend's name is Red. And they become amazing friends and then Andy Dufresne, spoiler, uh, escapes Shawshank Prison. Red, who did do the things he was accused of and was, you know, in having, you know, a, a in prison, uh, having the, the punishment for that, he finally gets released from prison. And when he's on the outside and in this place of new freedom, he finds it very difficult to live because he's been so institutionalized by being in prison for so long and, and he doesn't know how to cope on the outside. He says, I don't even know how to go to the bathroom without someone giving me permission. And he's very tempted at one point to get a gun and perpetrate another crime so that he can get back to where it was safe and comfortable for him, prison. What a tragedy if we're not willing to play the long game of being deinstitutionalized from the slavery to sin. Yes, as we say yes to God and no to ourselves, it gets uncomfortable. It's not the default that we're used to. But church, confirmation to this world is comfortable captivity. When we continue to conform to the way of this world, we may be in a, our comfort zone, but we're in captivity sometimes without even knowing it. The contrast to confirmation to culture is transformation of the mind. If we are to be different, we must think different. Our values, our discernment, our will, and our desires cannot be at home in Jesus' kingdom if they are status quo in the world around us. Guys, there are two hurdles that a human must navigate concerning God's will. What is his will, and do I have the will to do it? Discovering what it is and having the will to obey. Only a transformed mind can rightly discern what God's will is. A mind that's surrendered to and saturated by the Holy Spirit, that daily we're spending time with God to know his voice, to surrender our rights to him, to surrender our decisions of that day to him, to hear him speak to us, to read his word, and to have him change how we think and feel about life. It takes time, and it takes your effort, and it takes you setting aside a time for God to do this daily. Only a transformed mind can know and discern what God's will is, and only a transformed mind will have the will to do what God wants. And we stop conforming to this world, and we start transforming through mind renewal for a reason. Paul says it, discerning the will of God. Knowing the will of God. The word Paul uses here that's translated into discern, here to discern the will of God, isn't just about knowing. It's about knowing with the end goal and end will of doing it. You could say that transformation is about confirming and complying with the will of God, knowing what it is and being willing to actually do it. Transformation's end goal is this, knowing and doing the will of God.
otherwise known as obeying everything Jesus commanded. And this description of God's will, that it is good, pleasing, and perfect, and that word perfect means mature, completed, maturing. The point here is that our view of what is good, pleasing, and perfect comes into perfect alignment with what God views as good, pleasing, and perfect. Because I don't know about you, but all the things I tend to think are good, pleasing, and perfect to me don't always line up with what God says is good, pleasing, and perfect. Can I get an amen? The Holy Spirit Church wrote a book called the Bible, and then he narrates that book to our spirit daily. God's will was objectively written down by the Holy Spirit for all time in Scripture. If it's in Scripture, we don't have to question whether or not it's God's will or his truth. But then God's application of his will is translated by the Holy Spirit to our heart and mind by relationship and time spent in his presence. There is no shortcut. And now, most of us, when we're studying this passage, we'll stop after reading verse two and say, okay, I need to stop conforming and I need to start transforming. That sounds good. And then we stop reading because there's a little subheading above verse three in your Bibles that shouldn't be there because it separates verse two and verse three. So if you have a, a paper Bible right now, that little subheading that wasn't written by Paul, that was added in by people, scratch it out. I'm not joking. If you have a paper Bible, scratch it out. If you have a digital Bible, scratch on your screen and put a little arrow from verse two to verse three. Because how we do this transforming, Paul answers. Keep reading. Verse three, Paul says, for, there it is, he's connecting what he's about to say with what he just said, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned how do we take step one in the process of transformation? It's right there. Humility. Humility. You're probably so sick of hearing that word in this building. I would say I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. I'm sorry for myself because I'm sick of hearing it. I'm sick of being held accountable to it. But there is no way around it. a right view of ourselves. Why would Paul identify humility as the gateway virtue to having a transformed mind? It's because humility is the enemy of the self-centered, self-sufficient, self-exalting pride that gave birth to sin in the Garden of Eden. You do realize that pride, self-sufficiency, I'll do it my way and I will be the master of my own destiny. That is what caused this whole mess that we're in. Do you realize that? And so only humility can be a gateway to breaking that pride in our lives. We cannot have a kingdom mind if we have a satanic self-appraisal. We cannot have a mind transformed to operate in the kingdom of God if the appraisal of myself is satanic, prideful, arrogant, and selfish. How does Paul describe what we would express concisely as humility? He says in this word, don't hyperthink yourselves. It's literally what the word is. 
He says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. It's a word that says, don't hyperthink yourself. Don't overthink yourself. We should not overestimate, overappraise, or have lofty views of ourselves. Charlotte read me another quote from Charles Spurgeon this weekend, and I stole it from her to tell you. It says this, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> Instead of hyperthinking myself, I should see myself with sober judgment. The sense of this word is sanity. As opposed to being out of your mind, you should be in your right mind, sober, sane. My view of myself should be in line with reality, not warped and inflated and drunken with pride. Humility is neither a low view of yourself or a high view of yourself. It's a sober view of yourself, an accurate view of yourself. And here's the accurate view. I am sinful and I am flawed, but I am loved. And therefore, I will own a right view of myself that I am called to repent, I am called to be loved, and I am called to love. And this command to humility is not for just a select few. Paul says, I write this to everyone among you. This is not Humility is not something that just some people who are gifted with that in the church can do. No, 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 no. You don't get that out. I don't get that out. Humility is for the whole church and everyone in it. Humility should be the trademark of every kingdom citizen. The essence of living out the Christian life is being a person who is so humbled by the mercy of God that you can deeply and genuinely love people and love God. And the rest of chapter 12 and 13, and arguably the rest of the book, seems to be describing the various ways that kingdom citizens obey the commands of Jesus. And if you boil them all down to their essence, here's what you get. Love in the posture of humility. Love is always kneeling down and washing feet. You will never see love standing in a prideful, overbearing, I'm better than you posture. Love is always kneeling and serving. And the point of obeying Jesus' commands is not that there is some random list of things that are bad, and so we check off the list by not doing them. The commands of God are his behavioral descriptions of love. The commands of God in his word are his behavioral descriptions of what it means to love. And church, love has no other posture than humility. We obey the commands of God because they align us with his holy character and a lifestyle of love. Stealing isn't wrong because stealing is wrong. Stealing is wrong because it's not loving, because it's not like Jesus. Lying isn't wrong because it's wrong. Lying is wrong because it is not loving. It is not conformed, transformed to Jesus. God is the plumb line for good and evil, not a list. The Bible is not a rule book. The Bible tells us about God. And he, his Character, his personality, who he is, is the plumb line of good and evil. So when we sin, it's not because we broke a rule on a list. It's because we were not 
like God. We were not loving. Sin is sin because it is devoid of love. And love is the primary description of God's character. If we act outside of love, in that moment, we cease to image God, which is the whole point of our existence. Church, we must transformationally obey because our very existence demands that we image God. That is our design. He made us to reflect him. And when we do not love, when we sin, when we don't transform, we are not reflecting God in the way that we were meant to. Oswald Chambers said this, one step forward in obedience is worth years of studying about it. For most people in church, I wanna say this, you know enough. Is knowing more wrong? No. Seek more knowledge of scripture and God. But if it is not causing you to obey more, something is wrong. Your eyes for reading the Bible are broken. My eyes for reading the Bible are broken. Knowledge, we have enough. If you know one thing that God demands of you, you know enough. Obey. Transform. So for the person who has already surrendered to Jesus, your first step today after hearing God's word is a relentless pursuit of humility for the sake of living a life of transformed, obedient love. Church, we are far too in control of our own lives. And our view of our rights are far too high. A living sacrifice means that we kill and offer up our right to do as we want because it's owned by a king. And I, I can't help but feel if we not, don't think of anyone else, you sitting in your seat right now, me standing on this stage, the people of this church who have names and faces, not just this generic church in America, if the people sitting in this room right now will not surrender in a whole way to Jesus, Jesus will do what he needs to do without us. That's a nightmare to me. That Jesus would have to go around me to do his will. I'm talking to you specifically. Pretend you and I are the only ones in this room. Or maybe just pretend that you and the Holy Spirit are the only ones in this room you have choices to make. Will Jesus be your king? Or will he just be a source of good advice? Will you obey him when it means saying no to yourself? If that's how we continue, 
the church is dead. I'm not saying that's how everyone is. And I'm not saying that's how we all are all the time. But we're that way enough to render the church very powerless at times. Now, doubtless, there are some people in this room who have not yet trusted Jesus for salvation, not yet given, surrendered your life to him to be saved. And it might be tempting to hear this message about obedience and transformation and to rush off and try to better yourself by doing good things, thinking that this will bring you close to God. If, if this is you and that's what your brain is thinking, I would warn you and beg you not to do that. We have to put first things first. Sequence is so important. All of what Paul has said to us in this passage is founded on someone having received the mercy of God. If you have not made Jesus your king, if you have not surrendered to him, you have not received the mercy of God and therefore you cannot transform. You cannot obey God without having God. You cannot transform without the transformer. In fact, there may be people in this room and I have a very specific burden my life and ministry to speak this. There may be people in this room who have come to church for years, decades, and we've labeled ourselves as Christians. But when it comes right down to it, we don't see any transformation, no change. We're just as stubborn in our will, just as stubborn to do what we wanna do when God is saying otherwise than we were 20 years ago. And sometimes in the quietness of your heart, you sit there and not seeing the change you might expect of a, a believer in Jesus. You might even wonder if you've surrendered to Jesus. If that's you, the first step is to swallow your pride. Stop caring about what people you know and here may think and come to Jesus and live. There are people in churches all across the world who've been there for decades and are lost and on their way to hell. Do you think that sitting in this building for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years is going to be a sufficient answer to Jesus when you die and he says, why should I let you in? I sat in a pew for 20 years and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Your presence here does not make you present in the kingdom of Jesus. Your surrender to Jesus makes you present in the kingdom of Jesus. My surrender to Jesus makes me present in the kingdom of Jesus, me making him my Lord and Savior by grace through faith. Don't sit in a church for decades of your life and spend eternity in hell. Don't do it. Don't do it. So if that's you, your step this morning is to finally come to Jesus and live.
after all the sermons you've heard and the gospel you've ignored. Swallow your pride. Come to Jesus and live. And today, if you don't know Christ, your first step is to recognize that you are separated from God and in need of his mercy through the death and resurrection of Jesus who paid the price for you. Your calling is to repent of the rebellion against God and to surrender to Jesus as your rightful king. And church, please don't hear me wrong on this. Obedience and transformation is not just duty and obligation. No, it's joy. I have never had more joy in my life than when I'm most surrendered to Christ. This isn't duty and obligation. This is life. Joy forever. God calls us not just to obey, but he calls us to joy in him. It's what we were designed for. So as we finish up, right now I'm gonna ask anyone and everyone on the prayer team to come forward this morning and line the front of the stage. If you don't see enough people come up, if you know Jesus, come up here and be someone to pray with someone because we might have some people needing to pray right now, but if you have not yet given your life to Jesus as I pray, and when I end the service, I want you to come forward and I want you to receive some prayer and let one of these wonderful people that are gonna be up here lead you to know Christ. And if you're at home and, and you wanna give your life to Jesus, you can text CP Prayer to 209-521-0181 and we'll get back to you today and we'd love to walk you through this. Would you stand as we pray together? Father in heaven, you are king and we are yours. You created us. You have loved us faithfully. You have chased us down and you have allowed your son to be murdered on a cross and his sacrifice is more than enough. What else could we do but give you everything. Father, do this in us, do this in these people, your church, that we would stop optionalizing and partializing and delaying your commands and that we would have a rebirth, reformation of holy, humility-soaked, loving obedience to you for the sake of of your glory and the world around us who desperately needs you. And for those who need you here in this room this morning, Lord, let them reach out to you because you've reached out to them. Let them respond in surrendering their lives to you. We love you. All glory, honor, and praise we give to you in Jesus' holy name. Everyone said, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.